The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. Hi, I'm Sasha Abernathy. My mother baked these cookies for you. Just leave them on the desk. You need something? Anyone seen Stand and Deliver? Show of hands. You kidding me? Edward James Olmos? Blue Diamond Phillips? Wow. All right, you and you grab the TV and roll it up front. We're watching a movie on the first day? I think it's awesome. You rock. Oh. These cookies suck. Good morning, London. It is Thursday, November 28th, 2013. I'm Bob Metz. And I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. And we'll be with you from now till noon. No, no, not right wing. What then? Just right. I'm good. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be you actually had me thinking about it there for a second, Robert. Don't do that to me, please. 519-661-3600 is the number you can always call to reach us and write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org. And today we're going to be talking about a number of subjects, sort of related, I think, with within a greater theme. But in the second half of the show, I know, Robert, you plan to do some, what, teacher bash- bashing? Is that what you said? Yeah, I think it's time to bash some teachers. Really? Yeah. And, you, and um, you're going to be nice about it, though, are you? Uh, no. <laughs> Ooh, I've got to no, wait not. for that one. <laughs> and for my part, I want to talk a little bit. I just want to finish up a little more of uh, what happened with Rob Ford over the past few, week up, f- few weeks, and we've just got a bit of a follow-up to do in the first quarter of the hour. Second quarter of the hour, I'd like to talk about Russell's brand of socialism. <laughs> Russell Brand, of course, who has created a little bit of a stir with some of his political musings in the public. This is over in Britain. And I think uh, it's, it's going to feed into to the greater theme. I think we've got an interesting show ahead here. I want to start off with... Uh, the commentaries that keep floating around about Rob Ford. I mean, it just doesn't stop. And a lot of people don't know what really has happened in Toronto since it's quieted down a bit. He hasn't actually been in the news each and every day, maybe every other day now. But uh, got a couple of interesting things in in the paper on on the weekend. Ford thrives because of apathy, reads the headline of November 23rd's London Free Press editorial written by poverty activist Glenn Pearson. Now I'm wondering how could he possibly have gotten it so wrong. Ford thrives because of apathy? Ford's the only politician I can think of about whom the public is most definitely not apathetic. <laughs> One way or the other, they're not apathetic about this guy. So how, how is it he can thrive because of apathy? Nobody cares, right? So obviously that's why he's in the news every day. Makes a lot of sense. And, of course, that was more than forcefully demonstrated on our broadcast last week when we heard all of the witnesses and fans talk about just how much Ford is actually loved by the people. They're cheering him at the at the football game. It was a love fest, exclaimed David Menzies, as he was one of a number of first-hand witnesses to the event. But, you know, worse than piling on 
this unjustified smear campaign against Rob Ford, I think Glenn Pearson has additionally smeared the very meaning of liberty itself. I couldn't believe that he would cite Abraham Lincoln's Gettysburg Address in his condemnation of Rob Ford. Can you imagine that? A document that begins with conceived in liberty and and talks about, uh, you know, a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. And what does Pearson call for? Sacrifice for the public good to save our democracy. It's like, oh man, I can't believe it. He writes... The fact that the Rob Fords of the world believe they can get away with unacceptable conduct is merely a sign of how stupid they think we are as citizens. And until we use the very tools of democracy to restore public virtue, then their point is potentially validated. I'm thinking, what's the tool of democracy? I thought it was elections. He's not talking about elections. (laughs) That's the one tool he does not want any recourse to. And all the lefties are like that. They don't want elections. They want perpetual democracy, all of them. As long as people remain angry and detached, the unaccountable leaders win, he says. Now, I don't know to whom he thinks they should be accountable. I think he means to Glenn Pearson and the liberals, not to the voters whom he dismisses as apathetic. Will you hear what Russell Brand says about apathy in our second segment of the show and then reflect back on just how wrong (laughs) Pearson is on this. He writes, the best leaders acknowledge, like Lincoln, that they require citizens who are knowledgeable and prepared to sacrifice for a better future if democracy is to work. You know, I hear a line like that, and I'm I'm just so tired of constantly seeing purely fascist philosophy shoved so blatantly in my face by so-called democratic liberals. It's unbelievable. And he writes, philosopher John Rawls put it well, without a widespread participation in democratic politics by a vigorous and well-informed citizenry, even the most well-designed political institutions will fall into the hands of those who seek to dominate and impose their will through the state apparatus. All this will end... Well, only when citizens take it upon themselves. The responsibility of overseeing their communities through informative choices instead of merely opting every four years to vote for those of us who offer propaganda as opposed to principle. that make any sense to you? I, I can see that democracy is is great when it works in his favor, but right. terrible when it doesn't. <laughs> People right. voted in Rob Ford, and it looks like they just might vote him back. Oh, yeah. What's he going to say then? Well, then they'll do again. The left does not stop. They have no morals as far as that's, that's, that's their definition, isn't it? Abraham Lincoln, he says, misjudged the effects of a principal tone when he said in his Gettysburg address, quote, the world will little note nor long remember what we say here, end quote. In fact, the opposite held true. We can only hope the same will not apply to the world words and actions of Rob Ford and his ilk. His ilk? Who's his ilk? Right-wingers, of course. People who disagree with him. A watching world might well recall how the great virtues of Canadian democracy were ridiculed, not only by an elected few who dragged public life into the muck, but by the many who opted to let them get away with it. End quote. I gotta say, this is perhaps one of the most disappointing and tragic essays I've seen penned in a long time. And of course, I'm trying to be very kind here. Pearson is calling for nothing less than replacing our democracy with an unmitigated mob rule dictatorship. That's what he wants, perpetual voting constantly over things. 
It, it, it's, you know, what is that about? We don't need elections as far as he's concerned. Let's vote all the time. Let's override the electoral decisions of the voters. That's literally what he's calling for, isn't he? And, and what I have to mark on is the fact that he tries to quote that old Republican, Lincoln, yes, uh, to validate his argument. Oh, Just yeah. because he throws quotes in there from Lincoln, he's trying to validate his uh, tyranny. Interesting observation, because Pearson's a liberal, you know. To him, the equation really goes no further than liberals care, liberals are compassionate, everyone else isn't worthy of governing. And that's how they all think, you can hear it. It's in everything they say, those very words that come out. And now, from compassionate liberalism to compassionate Christianity, also with the purpose of declaring Rob Ford unworthy of governing, we have the following piece of compassionate hate literature. Literature. Quote, compassion before ethics, essence of gospel, says the headline above Bruce Tallman's I Care About Rob Ford, condemnation of him. From, all, from crocodile altruism of the Ford needs help argument to the crocodile compassion expressed towards someone you really despise. This seems to be the pattern. Right, spiritual director Bruce Tallman in the November 23rd Free Press, quote, putting compassion before ethics and people before rules is what Jesus was all about. When the Pharisees caught a woman in adultery, they asked Jesus if they should stone her, as the law demanded. He said, let the one who has not sinned cast the first stone. They all walked away. Now, what I find interesting about that quote is that, okay, they caught a woman in adultery. They didn't catch the man. That's interesting in itself, but that could be a whole other story. But by saying... Let the, one, the first one who you know, cast the stone. So in other words, Jesus didn't really answer the question. If there was one among them who had not sinned, it would have been okay for him to stone the woman. Isn't that what he said? Maybe Jesus should have thrown the first stone. Yeah, maybe he should have. <laughs> or, I thought he was without sin. Now, or in <laughs> other words, what he's saying is your sin is unimportant in matters of judgment. It's only relative to the sins of the people who judge you. Right? Mm. So that's, that's the judgment. There are no black and whites. There are no absolutes. If the guy judging you is worse than you, then you're okay, even if you're murdering. That, that's, just, that's exactly how it works. Uh, quote, he was not denying that adultery was a sin. He simply put compassion before the ethics of the law. Well, never mind that compassion and ethics don't even belong in the same category of language or thought. They're, they have nothing to do with each other. You, you don't have ethics or compassion. You can be compassionate all the time and have ethics, or you cannot be compassionate and have ethics. They're not, it's not an either-or situation. Ethical decisions have to be made constantly, and they don't all require compassion. I mean, you always have to decide between right and wrong. And he writes, this is why Pope Francis is so attractive. He is a living spirit of the Gospels. He's not throwing rigorous Catholic ethical teaching out the window. He's simply putting compassion before Catholic morality not condemning gays, giving a blessing to a motorcycle gang that wanted to meet him, and washing the feet of prisoners, end quote. Now, just my own observation, does the writer not see that even in so doing, Pope Francis has put gays, motorcycle gangs, and prisoners all into the category of requiring passion, <laughs> right? Which can, of course, only be bestowed by a superior moral authority. You see, you see the game going on we, here. We did this before when, yeah. when you said it's, it's better to give than to receive. Yes, it's the, same, it's the same equation. And compassion does not belong in the field or category of morality, justice, or ethics. It's the opposite of those things. It doesn't belong there. 
And then he writes, this brings me to Rob Ford, the prodigal mayor of Toronto. Yeah, right after gays, motorcycles, gangs, and prisoners. This brings me to Rob Ford. Um, why? Quote, months before all this news about Ford broke, he said in an interview that as a child, he had been constantly bu been bullied as, quote, the fat kid. He probably also came from a dysfunctional family. Yeah, probably. <laughs> probably. Probably did. I like, these, I like these judgments. Ford probably came from a dysfunctional family. Just, just write it. You got proof of that? Certainly not like mine, certainly not like modern family. He writes, everyone has a story, and once you know it, it becomes a lot easier to be compassionate, end quote. It does. Why would you not be less compassionate after you heard someone's story? Maybe there's something in the story that would make you less compassionate. That's the direction I'm usually led after hearing somebody's story. <laughs> <laughs> but for those who put compassion before ethics, does it always go one way? I mean, good heavens, somewhere along this route of compassion, there has to be a judgment of some sort made somewhere along the line. Ah, but wait, here it comes. Ethically speaking, he writes, Ford should not be mayor, and the council was absolutely right in limiting his powers. Period. That's it. What code of ethics? Doesn't say. By what right did C Toronto City Council limit the powers voted to him by the citizens of Toronto? No reasons given. Why? Other than, what, using letterhead to raise money for kids and football team? He never abused his powers. Is that the reason? Spiritual director Bruce Tallman does not say because he won't judge. He will not judge. Then get this. But let's be compassionate and not judge him too harshly as a human being. But wait a minute. What was it that you just did? Tallman just said that Ford should not be mayor for ethical reasons. How personal can you get? Right? But let's not judge him too harshly. Oh, my goodness. I wonder, according to the non-moral code of this spiritual director, just when does one actually put ethics before compassion? Does that ever happen? Is there ever a right and wrong to anything? What line do you actually have to cross before there is a right and wrong? This is an, un an un unanswerable question to somebody who holds the values that he's expressed here. There can be, be no such line. Ford, at worst, was only guilty of being stoned. Mr. Tallman <laughs> is guilty of throwing stones at the innocent while pretending compassion as his means of casting guilt. That's what they're all doing. It's a technique as old as a parable from which it has been misappropriated. <laughs> <laughs> now, on December 6th, coming up, which is a Friday, and not a very good news reporting day, unfortunately, one day after our next broadcast of Just Right, I understand Toronto's police chief plans to release the balance of, inf of the information they have on the Ford um, files. So expect the next round of this debate to either explode or fizzle in about two weeks' time. So, you know, there you go. And what's been new with the Ford situation? You know, if you're wondering what has been happening since Ford has been stripped of his powers. Well, News Talk 1010 reports that Rob Ford has been accused of littering. <laughs> <laughs> Heavens. Yes. And uh, the article writes, he has, he's admitted to smoking crack and drinking too much, but Toronto Mayor Rob Ford is now being accused of something else, littering. Activist Sheila White says, according to police notes, according to police notes, Mayor Rob Ford and his associates showed a blatant disregard for the environment, hiding beverage containers in a secluded area of a public park over the past year. <laughs> but she notes he was observed by officers earlier in the day using a garbage bin. <laughs> Can you believe this stuff? 
white invites. You just for, can't make this up. You can't make it up. It's too, <laughs> and it's, Ford's not the one. Everybody else is. Uh, you know, she calls littering a gateway crime, which could lead to other things like vandalism, not picking up after your dog, and urinating in public and smoking crack. Oh my! Is this funny? <laughs> and. Uh, White is calling on the provincial government to put in place a littering strategy. Of course, another lobbyist. Here's one. She also wants a litter strategy in place for the 2015 Pan Am Games, pointing to the number of tourists that will be in town. There you go. We need a littering strategy. That could be another million-dollar budget for that, couldn't it? By the way, this person who was uh, saying this held a press conference to yes. say it. Yes. A press conference. Yes. And they all came. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's the funny part. I wouldn't have showed up. Ah, well. Meanwhile, in the real news, the news that affects you and me, here is a short excerpt from a much longer commentary on what's been happening in Toronto City Hall over this past week by Sun TV's Ezra Levant. And on the other side of the bumper, we'll hear Russell Brand on his brand of socialism. We'll be right back. Could they be any more transparent? I mean, mere days after stripping Toronto Mayor Rob Ford of his staff, budget, and political powers, which is of dubious legality, Toronto City Hall has already announced a 2.5% increase in property taxes, scrapped a proposed 10% cut to the oppressive land transfer tax, and raised the price of bus fare in the city. Oh, and they stopped about another 12 million bucks for their prep projects. They're going to shovel that in. Who knew that left-wing politicians had such a work ethic? They achieved more in the past week than in three years in terms of taxing and spending. And that's the point here. That's the whole point. That's the only point. That's why they hounded Rob Ford during the last campaign in 2010 and were so crestfallen when he won that campaign and set about immediately trying to undermine him. That's why the media party cheered as left-wing activist lawyers Clayton Ruby and Brian Schiller sued to kick Ford out of the mayor's chair. That's why they delighted in every scandal, real or imagined, from his crime of smoking crack to his crime of eating Kentucky Fried Chicken. That's why they magnified every klutzy moment or misspoken phrase that's why people who despise him, the Toronto Star, the CBC, claimed to care very deeply about his well-being and wanted him to take some time off for health reasons, you see, for his own good, you know, to make sure he's okay because deep down they really do love him as a human being, you realize. They wanted him out not because they gave a damn about his personal troubles. They didn't even care. I mean, Rob Ford has said he might challenge the legality of a group of city councillors unilaterally destroying the office of mayor. I mean, Rob Ford was elected by 383,501 people. That's nearly 100,000 more people than his closest rival. But a few dozen of his political enemies on city council thought they knew better than the people. This is what the Rob Ford war was always about. Getting him out of the way so the gravy train could be started up again. They hate Rob Ford for so many reasons. But it all came down to that. He was a 300-pound barrier between them and the taxpayers' money. Nothing more, nothing less. Russell Brand, who are you to edit a political magazine? Well, I just suppose like a person who's been politely asked by an attractive woman. I don't know what the typical criteria is. I don't know many people that edit political magazines. Boris, he used to do one, didn't he? So I'm a, a person with crazy hair, quite a good sense of humour, don't know much about politics, I'm ideal. But is it true you don't even vote? Yeah, no, I don't vote. 
Well, how do you have any authority to talk about politics then? Well, I don't uh, get my authority from this pre-existing paradigm which is quite narrow and only serves a few people. It's not uh, that I'm not voting out of apathy, I'm not voting out of absolute indifference and weariness and exhaustion from the lies, treachery, deceit of the political class that has been going on for generations now and which has now reached fever pitch where we have a disenfranchised, disillusioned, despondent underclass that are not being represented by that political system, so voting for it is tacit complicity with that system and that's not something I'm offering up. Well, why don't you change it then? I'm trying to. Well why don't you start by voting? <laughs> I don't think it works. People have voted already and that's what's created the current well, paradigm. When did you last vote? Never. What's the scheme? You talk vaguely about revolution. What is it? I think a socialist egalitarian system based on the massive redistribution of wealth, heavy taxation of corporations and massive responsibility for uh, energy companies and any company that's exploiting the environment, I think they should be ta I think the very concept of profit should be hugely reduced. Okay. David Cameron says profit isn't a dirty word, I say profit is a filthy word because wherever there is profit there is also deficit and there, this system currently doesn't address these ideas and so why would anyone vote for it? Why would anyone be interested in it? Who would levy these taxes? I think we do need to, like, there needs to be a centralised administrative system, but built on... Yes, there I, needs to be a government. Well, we might maybe call it something else. Call them, like, the admin bods, right. so they don't get a And how would they themselves. be chosen? Jeremy, don't ask me to sit here in an interview with you in a bloody hotel room and devise a global utopian system. I'm merely pointing out that the You're current... You're calling for revolution. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I've taken the right. I don't need the right from you. I don't need the right from anybody. I'm taking it. And that's why guns were invented, <laughs> to protect us against those who think it's their right to dispose of our lives. He's taken it all, right? He's yep. taken it out of your pocket to give to well, somebody else. You know, I'm not going to be as harsh on him as others may have been. I found that was actually the most intelligent part of that lo much longer interview. And at the time I watched that YouTube posting, the viewing number read 9,329,155, and I was number... 9,329,156. Entirely juvenile and immature, but very revealing. And I don't know who I disagreed with more, the, the questioner or him. And, and, and there, there, there was so much wrong with that interview, I didn't know where to begin. Who are you to edit a political magazine, he asks him. And, well, you know, he says, I don't know many people who edit political magazines. I don't know much about politics. I'm ideal. Well, there's an admission. Right? I don't know much about politics. He's, ed he's editing a political magazine. End of credibility and authority right there. But the questioner, Jeremy Paxman, continues with a very irrelevant question. How do you have any authority to talk about politics if you don't vote? Huh? <laughs> Good grief, Brand just told you he knows nothing about politics. And you continue with a question that presumes, quite falsely, that one's practice of voting is a determinant, determinant of political credibility. Oh my goodness. That's, 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 that's worse than what Jer or th what um, Russell Brand was saying. I mean, that I, I, we get that all the time. People think if you don't vote, you shouldn't be allowed to, you know, comment on it. It's quite the opposite. And, and I think on the voting issue, he was totally right. I, I agreed with what he said. I think you could safely argue that nine times out of ten, you know, it's the other way around. Most voters are hammerheads and throw their vote away <coughs> routinely, election after election, just so they can say their vote won't be wasted and they, they threw the guy out even though they didn't get what they wanted. They voted for something that they don't believe in. And, you know, outside of the Freedom Party, Communist Party, and real core NDP supporters, I can't think of any other voters who vote on principle. There aren't many. And he says, my voting is not out of apathy. 
the very thing on which Glenn Pearson insists Rob Ford's support comes from, <laughs> all those apathetic people cheering him on to- at the top of their lungs. He says, I'm not voting out of absolute exhaustion of the dreariness, lies, deceptions, treachery, and deceit of the political class. Which is exactly what Ezra Levant and many others call the Toronto City Council, who just threw the people's representative out of elected office. That's the elected political class. And he says voting for them is tacit complicity with that system. Well, not with the system so much, but with them. So you shouldn't vote for them. And not voting still keeps you as part of the system. Having the right to vote means having the right not to have to vote. If you, if you have to vote, you don't have the right to vote. And he asks, why don't you change it and start by voting? And he responds, that doesn't work. It's the people who voted already who created the current mess, right? Which is true. And like, how, how can somebody say to somebody, you've only got three choices, they're all bad. Well, you can improve it if you'd vote. What? I get to vote one of, for one of the three choices and I'm going to improve something? What am I going to improve? You have to have a better choice to begin with. Now, of course, he doesn't know what that is. Obviously, no one has ever put an Ayn Rand novel in his book, and I, in his hands, and I think when they did, he could turn right around on us, because I think this guy's a smarter guy than we give him credit for. He's a very intelligent man, very witty. His, 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 his field as a comedian, yes. he's quite good. He's no Tim Minchin, but he's still quite good. And that's why, our, in our upcoming um, audio bite at the, at the bottom of the hour, we're going to hear him at his best, when he's very clever, and, and, and you just can't, compare what he's saying there to what he's saying politically. Uh, the irony here is that when he's saying that uh, he wants a socialist egalitarian state, uh, the, the current political class that he's decrying is actually working towards that goal. Yes. And like, and as you were saying during the comment, you said, you know, it's the underclass who is represented. That's the problem. <laughs> They're totally overrepresented in government. And obviously he doesn't see that, and he doesn't want to call it government, you know, this is... uh, And to a degree, saying that people don't give you rights, you take your own rights, that's true, but you don't have a right to do anything to somebody else. That's, that's again, a whole different situation. What actually drew my attention to this, too, was a letter to the editor by a fellow named Fred Morrow's in the London Free Press on November 16, who said, Russell Brand may be funny, but he's also right. And he cited how, you know, having read all the reactions of the Sun Media columnists to the interview, who were all ganging up on him over the socialist thing, he says he went online to see what all the fuss was about, and all he saw in the video was an intelligent observer of the social system that exists in Western democracies. Although nobody says it's called socialism right now, it's not capitalism. And... He says, I'm also confused that the mere mention of socialism evokes images of Stalin, Mao, and all the horrible events associated with those revolutions which came about due to a huge disparity between the haves and have-nots. I'm not sure if Marx would have approved of what the Russians and Chinese have done to his political economic theory, writes the letter writer. And I'm thinking, well, which is it, political or economic? Once the theory is political, economics is no longer a consideration, <laughs> right? <laughs> or... I mean, prices are set by the forced will of politics in that situation, not by the free will of economic consumers. And the result is shortages, lineups, rationing. Just look at our health care system, which on its current socialist path is economically unsustainable. And there's no one, no one, no one, no one, no one denies that. No one. And yet we carry on with it. No ifs, ands, or buts. Amazing. And then he writes, however, the reaction resembles the Red Scare of the 50s. And I'm thinking, well... I, for one, am glad to finally see members of the media actually clue in to some sort of philosophical ideology. 
We should have been acting or having negative reactions to socialism ever since the end of World War II. Does anyone even remember Remembrance Day? What was it that the West was fighting again? Canada's soldiers certainly didn't sacrifice their lives for health care, old age, pensions, and public education, that's for sure. Except for the public education, the others didn't even yeah, exist. Yeah, and that one only partially existed during the time of the war. Yes. And then he talks about when I think of socialism, I think of the top places in the world to live, according <coughs> to a UN survey. Sweden, Norway, Finland, Netherlands, to name a few. And I'm thinking, well, yeah, according to the socialist UN, these are the best socialist countries to live in. <laughs> <laughs> if that's your standard, yes. Yes, of course. <laughs> And he says, these countries have developed a good working relationship among business, labor, and government, deciding what is best for their citizens while ensuring that all three profit. Now, this assumes a great falsehood, that the citizens might not be better off than they are now without their socialized, uh, centralized planning. A country in which government decides what is best for the citizens is called a communist or fascist country, and those who support that system of government are called communists and fascists. Additionally, the real reason these countries are doing better than many other socialist communist countries is due to their more open access to the less socialist Western nations. And that's a fact. You can see that. The ones that have more trade with the West are doing better than the ones that don't. It's just that simple. And he says, when I think of socialism, I think of health care, old age, pensions, public education, and protection of the most vulnerable in our society. Well, so do I. And each time, each of those is in fiscal crisis and always in need of future tax increases, all of it on a Ponzi scheme that the writer likes because he sees himself and others like him benefiting from it. That's really what it's all about. And uh, he does conclude with, he says, I hope others will watch the video, make up their own minds, and I agree with that. Yes, Russell Brand does try to use humor, but his intellect and compassion also come through. And, uh, you know, I agree with that sentiment. Um, there's simply nothing about Russell Brand's intellect and compassion, real or imagined, that really has anything to do with a lot of his political points of view, or with this person's claim that society needs a strong middle class. That's very interesting, but irrelevant. Classes as such don't exist in capitalist economic systems, only in structured systems by government. So, you know, Russell Brand thinks that his brand of socialism, a word that he seems unfamiliar with or doesn't want to touch, is somehow different or new in the sense of what has been tried or failed over and over and over again in the past. And let's face it, the only thing that's ever been new in terms of politics or economics in the whole world, ever, ever, has been the rise of capitalism, which managed to triumph only briefly in a world full of collectivist and mystical notions. And that's the problem with um, the whole notion of, of, of Russell Brand. Now, I don't want to write the guy off because I, like, he came out, he admitted, I don't know about politics. I have an answer. He understands that voting by itself that isn't where it's at. I think he may yet progress. But if you've never heard Russell Brand's brand of humor before, something that he actually knows about, it's quite an intellectual contrast against his brand of politics, something, of course, he says he knew nothing about. So it seems quite amazing to me that someone who sounds as grounded to reality as what we are about to sample could ever have come up with so unreal political vision we just heard. It's, it, it's almost too funny for humor. So let's take our halftime break for a smile and we shall return. Please welcome Russell Brand. Hello, good evening. <laughs> right, but my favorite thing in the sun ever, right, is the sun's letters page dear son the page where you tell britain what you think not just any thought though like move arm now or eat breakfast it's morning 
preferably a thought that might inspire some hatred and antipathy towards people that are slightly different. Right. <laughs> this one here, right, this is a story that concerns Ian Huntley practicing witchcraft in his prison cell, right? And like, when I read that, I thought, what is the point of that story, right? Because I, like most of us here, made my mind up about Ian Huntley when he killed those children. <laughs> what? Ian Huntley's practicing witchcraft? Oh, you're joking. <laughs> Next letter, very different tack, no less sublime. It begins thusly. <clears throat> Voodoo is very real! <laughs> and very dangerous. Often destroying those who practice it. Often. Occurrences, right? On the way here tonight, I see five people practicing voodoo. Three of them were destroyed by it. <laughs> Look at the statistics. <laughs> With any luck, Huntley will destroy himself by opening a doorway to a world beyond the knowledge of mere man. That's a heavy thing to sort of hope for, ain't it? And then to send it to the sun. It is not a metaphysical newspaper. This is a proposition that if it come from Dante would confuse you. Do you know what I hope happens to Ian Huntley, right? I'll tell you what I hope happens, right? Right, I hope he destroys himself. Oh, how? This is the good bit. By opening a doorway to a world beyond the knowledge of mere man. A world so baffling and complex that whilst man and Huntley can perceive it, he has after all just opened a doorway to it, he can never know it. He can never integrate it into his understanding of what is because he's a mere man. If he were a mere cat... <laughs> better vantage point. His voodoo dolls should be taken away and burned. Now, I don't know much about voodoo. What's that supposed to mean? It's says heartbeat's a lot better than you. Is she? Is she really? My mom's a teacher in the school. And she's a lot better than you, too. Great. On Monday nights, my mom tutors. And Mrs. Quinn takes care of me. And she's better than you, too. Great. And freaking my swimming teacher. And Gus, my t-ball coach, are better than you, too. I really appreciate your honesty. Do you happen to know someone that is not better than me? I don't know that many people. 
<laughs> what a cute little kid. This <laughs> kindergarten cop. Yeah. I think, yeah, Schwarzenegger would probably make a really good teacher, personally. <laughs> I thought so, from the movie, anyway. Yeah. Uh, that's the danger, isn't it? Whenever we want to talk about the problems of public education, we, we always risk being accused of teacher bashing. And the irony is that teacher bashing is the phrase used to describe anyone who would dare talk about the problems of public education. So, oh, that's interesting, yeah. Yeah. So, well, as someone who would like to at least comment on many of the problems of public education, I'd like to uh, meet the accusation of teacher basher head-on and say that, yes, I'm a teacher basher. Not because teachers per se are necessarily at the root of the problem of public education, because they are not, but because they are the facilitators of the problem of public education. We can't let them off by... Uh, kowtowing and, and, and bowing to them and say, oh no, I'm a teacher bash. I know that there's good teachers. We should stop that. They're facilitating every problem in public education. And at any given time, we can check out the local media or online for examples of gross and extreme examples of how public education is so destructive to the minds of children. And I have a few examples. There are hundreds, literally hundreds, but I have a few, which illustrate how teachers are complicit accomplices in the disintegration of knowledge and the harmful effects such disintegration has on children. You know now, how this rubs the total wrong way and goes uphill and up against the grain of what we hear in the papers all the time. Eh? Well, of course, but and, that's and what we do know, here, isn't it? <laughs> apparently there's a lot of people out there who love public education. Oh, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, they're welcome to it. Now, if you go back to episode number 239 of this program, I brought up the example of Jesse Sansone of Kitchener, who was strip-searched by the police and his children taken away um, by Family and Children's Services in Kitchener when his daughter's teacher informed on him because his four-year-old daughter had drawn a picture of her father shooting monsters under her bed. Mr. Sansone doesn't even own a gun, and even if he did, gun ownership in Canada is not illegal. And with the proper licenses, no matter, the teacher saw a gun. The principal saw a gun. The school superintendent who defended the principal and the teacher saw a gun. So therefore, there was some threat perceived and the most drastic action imaginable had to be taken. There is a concept in law called in loco parentis, which is Latin for in place of a parent. Uh, this is the time-honored, reasonable position that a person other than a parent who is in temporary custody of a child assumes the responsibilities of the parent of that child. Daycare workers and teachers are such people who act in loco parentis. When the parent drops their child off at the daycare or school, they are transferring their authority as parents to the daycare worker or the teacher to act in their stead. It is expected that the teacher act in the best interest of the child in the parent's absence. And this includes teaching them and even, if necessary, disciplining them. This is right and proper and as it should be and has a legal history dating back several hundreds of years. But recently we have examples of people who act beyond the concept of in loco parentis and assume a role over children usurping that of the parents. In Manitoba, the government licensing uh, guidelines for daycare centers require them to supplement any child's lunch, even though packed by their parents, which is not in compliance with the Canadian Food Guide, or Canada's Food Guide. Uh, Kristen Bartiv, 
parent of Natalie and Logan was fined $10 when the child's daycare discovered to the parent's horror, to their apparent horror rather, that the children's lunch of roast beef, potatoes, carrots, and an orange and milk was deficient in a grain, as laid out in the Canada Food Guide. The result, beyond the fine, was that the daycare supplemented the children's lunch with Ritz crackers to make up for the deficiency. If I was a kid, I wouldn't ever eat the crackers. I'd eat the rest of it and throw the crackers away. Would I be tossed out of the school even if it was packed for me? Good question. Let's forget for the moment that it is beyond the responsibility of a proper government to create a food guide in the first place. And let's forget for the moment that it's improper for a government to direct any daycare center to follow such a stupid food guide. And let's forget for the moment that Canada's food guide was crafted to appease certain political lobby groups, specifically the wheat marketing boards, the egg marketing boards, the milk marketing boards, Quebec dairy farmers, etc. ad nauseum, negating the wishes of many people who have evidence suggesting that diets, including grains or dairy, are actually detrimental to good health. Or vegetarians who, while neglecting uh, evidence that which would suggest that vegetarian diets, diets are not necessarily optimal, nevertheless find the Canada Food Guide contrary to their beliefs. So let's forget all that and focus on the concept of in loco parentis. Here we have the parent packing their children's lunches. Their wishes and directions regarding what their children are to consume are clear. For any daycare worker or government bureaucrat to decide otherwise goes beyond in local parentis and becomes, to use the Latin again, parents patriae. Parents patriae means parent of the nation and legally refers to the power of the state to intervene against an abusive or negligent parent. Now, until recently, parents patriae was reserved for the most heinous of crimes committed by parents against their children, such as sexual or physical abuse, or not providing for the necessities of life. Today, apparently, refers to not providing Ritz crackers in their lunch. If it wasn't so absurd, it could be taken as pure comedy, but this instance is typical of the uh, usurpation of the right of the parent to raise their children as they see fit, barring any of the obvious objections of violence and mistreatment, of course. Now, also flying in the face of common sense and the wishes of many parents is the instance of some schools to allow children to come into contact with each other. Another bizarre example of public education. Now, back in my day, we called it playing. You know, but the administrators of Coglin Fundamental Elementary School in British Columbia have just instituted a ban on children touching each other. No, they're not necessarily referring to that kind of touching. They are referring to any touching whatsoever. Happening in the London system too, Robert. It's all rife through the whole system. Now I'm talking about the kind of touching necessary, for example, to help your friend up from the ground. Or that incidental touching which may occur when you pass a book to your classmate and your hand brushes against theirs, their hand. Such contact has been declared forbidden. Could any parent dream up such a bizarre rule? No, only an administrator could. And the irony is that while in BC children are forbidden to touch one another, here in London, not so long ago, and I was involved in this uh, fighting it actually, we implemented a sex ed curriculum which declared mutual masturbation by students as a, quote, green light activity. Oh my goodness. Receiving the <laughs> blessing of the school board and local administrators. In PEI, we now have... For people who don't know, you should let them know you were a two-time 
London Board of Ed. Yeah, <laughs> trustee. Okay, so that's what you I mean. Was on, yeah. I was on the school board right. as a trustee at that time, yeah. voting against that particular right. sex ed curriculum. Um, now, in per- Prince Edward Island, we have the government's parental guide to children's sexual behavior, which says that the touching of the genitals of familiar adults by children is normal and should not be discouraged. Such is the infallibility of the government bureaucrat. In one jurisdiction, children can engage in sexual behaviors with children and adults, apparently, while on the left coast, children are <laughs> forbidden to touch at all. Yeah. So, when we come back from a little break, I'm going to talk about some of the bizarre public education atrocities out there. Let's have a, let's listen to this. Is it me? No, I don't. I mean, is there something wrong with me? I, I don't think so. I mean, sometimes you talk to people and... Thank a- you. Forgetting. At least now you can stop worrying about him and be the best teacher you can be. I mean, who knows? Maybe you'll win the bonus. What bonus? For the state test. Whichever teacher has the highest scoring class gets a bonus. Amy wins every year. How much? $5,700. Son of a bitch. $5,700? Yeah. Damn it, Lynn. You never tell me anything. Yeah. Where's the TV? Now everybody, open your To Kill a Mockingbird to page one. Good. Now, who can tell me why Jem cries when the hole in the tree is filled with cement? Because she's a crybaby? <laughs> Get out. We're here to learn. Anybody else have a problem with that? Good. Now who has the answer to my question? Nobody's read this book? It's on the syllabus. Well, you never assigned it to us. Well, now I am. And we have a quiz tomorrow. What? On the first hundred pages. You can't do that. I have band and jazz band tonight. We haven't had homework all year. Things are about to change around here. Recess is over. Because birds symbolize freedom? Good. Good, okay. Does anyone have anything to add to what that girl just said? So, what are the limitations of having Scout as the narrator? I guess that was from Bad Teacher, was it, Bob, those clips? Yes, you haven't seen it yet. No, I hadn't. You know, that movie got a real bad reputation, actually, because it was kind of raunchy in a way, right? The way it started, it turned into a family movie by the end of it, and it was a very clever movie. I thought it had a a good message. I'm going to have to have a look at that one. And a lot of fun to watch. So we were talking about Parents Patrie, that's the... uh, Father as state, or state as father, rather. And the state as father has produced some really bizarre bands across this country and the United States. And here is a list uh, of things which were, have been banned in schools, which was published in the Huffington Post. Holding hands, hugging. Oh, dear. Wow. <laughs> uh, red ink, uh, dodgeball, non-motorized transportation. Non-motorized? Book, yeah. Hmm. Book bags, like walking, huh? I remember when Pogs were banned. <laughs> that was They were all the rage, and the kids were just so distracted by playing Pogs, I think they just banned it. Uh, bake sales, black makeup, 
Yoga pants. I agree with that one. Silly bands. <laughs> <laughs> Best friends. Milk. Dinosaurs. Ugg boots, whatever they are. Baggy pants. Skinny jeans. Winning. Balls. And Christmas. All banned in one jurisdiction or another by public school administrators. Now, bo- both Bob and I actually know of someone here in London whose 12 year old was chastised for declaring that he had a girlfriend. That's right. Contrary to all things normal, the school called the child's mother to say that he was not allowed to have a girlfriend. Can't use that word. Nope, it's the word. Yeah. The public education system in Canada. And we in most <laughs> couldn't think of another word for, <laughs> for how, to call, how to call her. Well, she's the friend across. Oh, she. Did we say she? she oh, my goodness. Yeah. You know? It's just bizarre, isn't uh, it? It's, 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 it comes, again, from a failure of teachers and an, or an ability to be able to judge anything. So they make rules. That's what I see it all as. It's all rules. So then you can say, well, I obeyed the rule. It just, it's just totally, That's why I say totally we should logic. blame the teachers. Yes. They are the facilitators well, they, of these rules. Yeah, but they're in the rules, too. Yeah. And they're also making them up. Now, the public education system in Canada, in most, as in most countries, acts, in my opinion, as the propaganda wing for the left. Any parent who has their child enrolled in a public school or who disagrees with the destructive teachings of the left have to constantly deprogram their children after school or face the fact that their children are being raised by the state to actually despise their parents for holding views contrary to that of their teachers. The ensuing conflict in viewpoints creates a dysfunctional parent-child relationship, which, happily for the left, is one of the many social objectives of them, the destruction of the family. Leonard Peikoff's latest book, The Dim Hypothesis, puts the teaching of children by public educators in perspective. The way I understand it is that public education would be classified by Leonard Peikoff as a D, a disintegration of facts. That, that's what the D mm. would stand for. M would be misintegration and I is integration. Consider that all knowledge is hierarchical. One fact flows from another until a complete understanding or integration of a topic and the facts is achieved. In mathematics, we begin, for example, with the concept of numbers. From then, we move on to the number line, then addition, subtraction, and so on, until we reach more complex concepts, uh, such as differential equations and matrices. Knowledge is an inverted pyramid with the more fundamental facts at the apex on the bottom, which then branches out and upwards as we learn more and integrate all the other knowledge below it. In public schools, such a hierarchy is turned on its head or abandoned altogether. Children in the early grades focus on such higher-order political concepts such as the anti-concept social justice or private property issues of pollution or the extremely complex study of meteorology and anthropogenic climate change a six-year-old is coming home to a mother and father and chastising them for using a drive through rather than parking and going into a coffee shop because to have your car idle increases your carbon footprint. That's from a six-year-old. Mm-hmm. How does he know such a thing? Which is false, by the way. Teacher said. Teacher said we should recycle. Teacher said that the white man is mistreating the native. Teacher said Walmart is a big bad corporation who treats their employees like slaves. Teacher said that we shouldn't eat meat because animals have rights too, don't you know? Teacher said that the war in Afghanistan is wrong and that our soldiers are baby killers. I remember when my grandson said to my daughter, 
you're one of the bad people. Really? Yeah, because she didn't turn off her lights at 8 o'clock at night when they were all turning off their lights for one of those. Oh, the Earth Hour. The Earth Hour, yeah. Yeah. That mental insanity. Yeah. It is absolutely and, and, true. I'm not and, making and this stuff up. No, you can't make it up. No. Um, it, it's so in the gutter. I, I, I would close the schools all tomorrow if it were up to me yep. and reopen them up as private schools between parents and teachers. End of story. I've said this on the, sh- yeah. on the show before, and I was a school trustee for the public education system that I would recommend that everybody remove their kids from public education. If nobody came, they would shut down. It's just as simple as that. Yeah, it's easy to recommend, but there's no place to go. You yeah. see, that's the problem. That's the problem. The, the option gotcha. has to be created, right? You've got to pay law for that system. Yeah, you got to pay for that so system. So that it you ain't going to happen until you get a new political party. That's yeah. all there is to that one. Oh, do you got any ideas for a I got party? one or two. Yeah, yeah. Okay. In my opinion, teachers are indoctrinating children to become just like them, Marxists. The fact that children are graduating unable to read or write is proof enough that the public education system should be scrapped. If we believe that it exists to educate our children, consider exactly what kind of education they're receiving. If it exists to socialize children, ask yourself, why? If I passed by a schoolyard, you know, uh, just the other day, yesterday, where I saw elementary school children screaming at the top of their lungs. You know, on recess time, they mm-hmm. go out and they shriek and they scream and they yell, pushing and shoving each other. One little girl had been buried in a pile of snow by some boys and had her friends, and her friends were trying to pull her out by her arms and she <laughs> couldn't get her out while she's crying. The teacher supervising the playground was at the other end of the schoolyard, completely oblivious to the turmoil surrounding her. Or perhaps she was actually enjoying the brutish, unruly behavior of her charges. Perhaps she was thinking, like, like most lefties, wow, this is just how the world should be. Unruly, violent, brutish, with no order, no discipline, no education. And, you know, you're, we're getting what we're paying for here mm-hmm. in this case. You know, it's funny when you were talking about the hierarchy of knowledge there. Mm. You know what that reminded me of? What? When you and I had that battle with the Board of Ed over whole language. That's right. literally what we were dealing with, the hierarchy of knowledge and reading. They were trying to skip all the basic steps. Whole language is a perfect example of disintegration model. Yes, that's exactly. I never thought of it. It never never occurred to me until you just said that today. In brief, you know, phonetic uh, teaching children to learn uh, using phonics is to teach them the uh, what is it the um, twenty nine sounds that the twenty six letters of the alphabet make, something like that, and then integrating them so that when they see them on a page, they integrate them and that they can sound it out and read properly. It only takes about six months to teach a child how to read that way. While whole language throws words at the child, not not letters. You're mm-hmm. not supposed to sound out letters, which have sounds. You're supposed to recognize words, words in sentences, random words, whatever. Look at the context of how the word is in a sentence. You know, is the word beginning with a big letter? It, that kind of a thing. Uh, and they, uh, anything but... Don't sound it out. It's so destructive to the mental processes. I don't know how... I would never have been able to read like that, ever. No. and, and, and no, Nobody can, as a matter of fact. That's why that you're graduating illiterate. Well, most kids that I know who can read, read because their parents taught them. Their parents taught them, yeah. Mm-hmm. Or they pick it up, uh, they understand it themselves, not because they're taught that. So, I mean, just to You round can teach up. yourself. It's not hard. <laughs> it <Yeah>. isn't. <laughs> you know, they, they used to teach reading. Why do we need using teachers for book. half the things we use them for? They used to teach reading using one book. Mm-hmm. That was the book that everybody had in their house, the Bible. 
I'm not necessarily advocating that we go back to reading just using one book or even the Bible, but that's how easy it can be. But they make it so hard in the schools, and I think that we have to start putting the blame on the people who are facilitating all of these nonsense rules, and that is the teachers. You know, you, you, it's funny that you want to blame the teachers and not the state that imposes all this. It's, it's, it's no, I didn't say that. Well, okay. I'm saying we have to blame the teachers as well oh, okay. as just, the fundamental Just quit leaving the teachers problems. out of the equation is what you're saying. Yeah, well, maybe on another show we can get to the actual root of the problem, which, mm-hmm. of course, the universities. It is the professors in the universities who come up with all these schemes oh, yeah. to develop these things like whole language. Uh, that was developed by uh, Kenneth and Yetta Goodman in his, the Arizona State University. Uh, just to be an example, uh, just to show you that they are at the root of that problem. Right. But they would never succeed if they didn't have the facilitators like teachers. Exactly. And, well, we'll have to deal with that one on a future show. For this week, we've got to go for another week. And we shall continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you next week. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. My father had an answer for everything, though. I'll give him credit for that. Uh, I remember once I was watching Sesame Street, right? And I just turned to my dad and I said, Dad, how come Big Bird can't fly? And my daddy just looked at me and he said, uh, Well, that is because that is not a bird, Derek. That is a tired old man in a bird costume. He's a failed actor and we will never see his face on the TV.